My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? People who do evil things almost never think that they're doing evil things. The evil in history is done by people who think they're doing good and who think that the ultimate goal justifies every action that they take. I mean, it was the guy who was the first chief of uh, you know, Soviet intelligence, what would become the KGB, Felix Zerzhinsky, Iron Felix, head of the Cheka. His whole job was to stamp out counter-revolution and anything that opposed the, the advance of, of communism. You know, put it pretty simply, every anything which serves the interests of the revolution is good. Anything which impedes the interests of the revolution is bad. That's the only morality that we recognize. And thus, since the revolution and its goals represent the ultimate good, nothing done in its name is bad. It's all sort of, you know, again, it goes back to like what, you know, Le Carre's semi-fictional chief of British intelligence told Alec Lemus and the spy who came in from the cold. In order to combat these evil things, we must do evil things ourselves with the idea that ultimately it serves a better cause. But in the meantime, we must lie and cheat and steal and deceive. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mark Palmer, and today's show is a deep dive into the esoteric realms of espionage and secret societies, and the two go hand in hand like an occulted handshake. We examine many different figures, Aleister Crowley, John Dee, Edward Kelly, Sidney Riley, and people I've never heard of before like Sir Francis Walsingham. Emperor Rudolph, Rene Guénon, and George Hunt Williamson. We had the perfect guest for this conversation, folks. A man who has a PhD, professor in history, specializing in Russian intelligence and military history, specifically modern espionage, anti-Semitism, the Holocaust, and of course, today's topic, the history of secret societies and the role of the occult in history of which he's wrote many, many different books, 
such as Trust No One, The Secret World of Sidney Riley, Secret Agent 666, Aleister Crowley, British Intelligence, and The Occult, a book that I used to research my infamous episode on Tinfoil Hat, episode 377, where Sam and I took a look at Aleister Crowley, and we re-examined that today with our guest, Dr. Richard Spence. Richard Spence is a really brilliant guy, and it was an honor to have him on the show. Not only has he written several books, but he has also authored numerous articles in Revolutionary Russia, Intelligence and National Security, the International Journal of Intelligence and Counterintelligence, The Historian, New Dawn, and other publications. He is a commentator and a consultant for the History Channel, as well as the International Spy Museum, and he was a key consultant interviewee for the Russian Cultural Foundation's 2007 documentary film, Leon Trotsky's The Secret World of Revolution. We got into a lot of great topics, stuff that I'm vaguely familiar with, and then things that I was more familiar with. So enjoy. Be sure to follow up with Richard Spence. Like he said, you can find most of his books on Amazon. Richard has an awesome group of courses that you can get right now you go to the great courses plus or wondrium and you can learn in depth take a, a closer look at a lot of the subjects we touched on today in this conversation so without further ado richard spence thank you for joining us on the show how are you sir nice to <laughs> make your acquaintance nice to meet you as well all right. Virtual acquaintance. This is what we call it now. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, they're trying to make it the norm, but hopefully our conversation today will give people some second thoughts on the that whole idea of conformity in general. We're going to be touching on that briefly with secret societies and Crowley. I wanted to start by thanking you for joining me, sir. Your book, I've owned it for about a year now. I bought it in effort of getting a really good picture of Crowley because I've seen his books here and there and I've seen the books that he wrote himself and they had such a a fog to them that it was hard to cut through the the context of the time it was written and really understand this person until you see the context of a biography rather than this autobiographical account obviously he's going to leave things out he's going to aggrandize himself but your book did a great job of showing him for who he was to the real movers and shakers. He wasn't just a, a black magician who was called on to be some oracle. He actually had a role to play in this whole espionage scene. And your book brought that right into the forefront. And I really wanted to thank you for putting that all together because it's a, it's a very good, well-written book. Well, thank you. Um, thanks for having me on the show, and I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed the book. There are lots of biographies of, of Aleister Crowley. So my book, I, I made the point that I didn't set out to chronicle his entire life. I, I really set out to look at a particular aspect of it, which had been, I think, suggested and hinted at. Everybody would sort of talk around it, but no one would address it directly. And that was the thing that he would periodically claim. Crowley, usually when he was in some kind of distress, would claim that um, he had worked for his magic. He had, he had done service for the British government. He had, he had worked for the Secret Service during you know what was then called the World War, during World War I. And it was one of those things that 
I think even sympathetic Crowley biographers had well, I kind of reasonably steered cl- clear from because there wasn't any proof of it. And but it, it also kind of shows you that they really weren't sure how to take his statements, whether whether he was being serious about it. And I wasn't either. I, I didn't set out to try to prove anything about Aleister Crowley. I, okay, that's that's one of the things that I don't do. I don't generally set out to prove because once you do that, once you set out to prove something, that's what you'll prove. So what I wanted to know, what I was curious about, was simply whether there was any truth to his statements that he had some connection to British intelligence. So we start poking around. And the one thing, what, what, what was to me the smoking gun, didn't really come from a British source. It came from an American source. Because, to give a little background here, Crowley spends all of World War I in the United States. So the war broke out in August 1914. On October 31st, Halloween, he shows up on the Lusitania in New York. Uh, Initially, what he claims is an economic mission for the British government. He pretty much drops that pretense. But this all had to do with his sort of general cover for war purchasing, which I've seen as a cover for all kinds of of activities, mostly intelligence-related. But So he arrives there, and he's in the United States all the way through the war, doesn't return to England until December 1919, until a year after the war is over. So this is his whole American interlude. So I thought, you know, I knew from my other research that American authorities, in particular what was then called the Military Intelligence Division. So I get a little background. Back in the First World War, back in 1917, 1918, there was what was called the Federal Bureau of Investigation or the Bureau of Investigation. It it wasn't anything like it is today. It was a fairly small organization under the Justice Department. Didn't really play a huge role in American internal security because it really wasn't big enough for that. So who stepped in during the First World War was the U.S. Army. I mean, you know, they already had an intelligence apparatus. And so they expanded a thing called the Military Intelligence Bureau into the Military Intelligence Division. And they set out to spy on everybody. So they kept fairly a a huge card file index on anyone who were considered to be pro-Germans, any kind of Bolshevik. They became very interested in anything touching upon Bolshevism. And the interesting thing about this military intelligence records from that period is that unlike virtually all other intelligence records, they got declassified. I mean, they're wide open. So you can go through and you can look in their card file and you can find everybody that they had a file on, which was quite a few people and and the basic suspicions about them. Now, not all of those files remain because there's this curious tendency for a lot of information to get shredded over the years. But there would still be a, a fairly detailed notation of what a file contained, what it actually said about that person. So I'd, I'd looked through quite a few of these. I was pretty familiar with the military, the, what were called the MID archives. And so I just sent off a letter to the National Archives. And I said, in the MID files, is there anything on Aleister Crowley or 
Edward Crowley, which, by the way, is what his real name is. Okay, his real name to the day he dies is Edward Alexander Crowley. Alistair was, you know, he was a kid and he adopted a name for himself. But all of his sort of legal affairs tend to be handled. So, if, for instance, if you want to track him very often by travels, if you want to look at his entry in and out of a country, you don't look for Alistair Crowley. You look for Edward A. Crowley. So, sure enough, there was a little file. It wasn't a very big file. It was about 50 pages long. And the file was basically a series of reports from the military intelligence officer in West Point, New York. And the reason why Crowley showed up in that was because during that summer in 1918, he'd been camping. He, he canoed. He literally canoed. Today he would kayak. But he canoed up the Hudson River and he camped out on a thing called Esopus Island where he conducted various magical rituals. You know, had a girlfriend show up, fire some guns in the river. But he was camping out. And of course, the local military intelligence officer became very interested as to why this weird Englishman was camping out on this island. And then he started checking around and he found it. Oh, yeah. Well, this this guy was, you know, he claimed to be a pro-German Irish revolutionary. Oh, and, and he wrote a bunch of anti-British articles for a, a pro-German magazine, all of which he did. So maybe he's up to something. So the MID were thinking about swooping in and arresting him because they thought he looked suspicious. But in this report, there's an inquiry made to the British consulate in New York. And the smoking gun was that the British consulate turned around and say that this individual, Alistair Crowley, is in the United States on official business for the British government. The consulate is fully aware of what he has been doing. And, you know, basically we're not concerned about it. So the underlying message in that is that he's one of ours layoff. And they did. <laughs> so that was a kind of, see, that's the type of thing that you're looking for, because now you have the, you have the British consulate through the Americans admitting that he's working for them. Right. So that I would say that was the one thing Crowley was on official business for the British government. Now, of course, that still leaves open the big question as to what that official business was. Right. And that then led to further exploit. That that showed me that I was on something. And then knowing that, knowing that he is working for the British government, that's where you can go back and begin to look at his activities in a different light. So what in his activities, wartime, could have served the interests of the British government? So if he's, if he's serving the British government by writing anti-British propaganda for a German magazine, then what does that tell you? Well, mm. he's what would be called a, well, he's kind of a mole, but let's say that he is, he's an agent of influence. Right. Almost, some, almost a double agent, but not as simple as that. Yeah, double agent would, would fill it. He's a kind of agent provocateur, I would say. Someone who's infiltrated into the enemy camp to spy on them, but also to misdirect them right. as much as possible. So that was a kind of revelation. There, there are more things that have come up since. And, you know, in fact, I can share something with your listeners, which is, uh, I, don't, I don't think it's part of the public record, but recently, you know, someone else 
tick me off on this. We segue up to the next war, up to 1939, just before the outbreak of World War II, where Crowley will be called back into service. He will be, you know, naval intelligence will sort of summon him back. And, and again, the question was, were they serious about it? Well, just before World War II, the British undertook a survey of the British population. It was a kind of census, except they didn't call it a census. But it was a survey of the population. It was classified for years. In fact, much of it still is, because one of the things that was contained in it is, of course, you would note where everybody lived and what occupations they were in. But then over in the side column, there would be new notations generally in blue ink about what past or current military experience they had. They pretty much they figured that there was a war coming up. So we want to know basically what people are out there or have any kind of experience we could use. So sure enough, Edward Alexander Crowley is listed in this. By the way, he lists his occupation as psychiatrist. <laughs> I think okay. it's, it's psychiatrist or psycho because he's actually worked with a couple of psycho, but it's not occultist. It's not magician. No, mm. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a psychiatrist. Which he wasn't, we, but, but but then over in the notation, there's a thing which basically says that it is he is on the emergency list NID, and what the NID stands for is the Naval Intelligence Division. So if you really want to know what branch of British intelligence Crowley was connected with, it was naval intelligence, it wasn't MI6 as far as I can tell, but he was most clearly connected to naval intelligence. He'd worked for them in the First World War. That's where all the threads lead back to. And now, in 1939, he is still a member of the emergency list. And what the emergency list was, was a list of prior personnel. Basically, it should be, officially, it's a list of former naval officers, someone who had a naval commission, who could, in an emergency, you know, like a war, be called back for service. And in 39, he's still on that. So that, from the British end, is the clearest indication I've seen that 20 years after World War I, he's still being carried on the emergency list of the NID, which then explains why he's immediately called up when the war breaks out and told to come to the Admiralty. But the other thing which is interesting about that and what really surprised me about it is that as far as I've been able to tell, to be on the emergency list, you had to have had a naval commission. You know, maybe it was just a wartime commission. It doesn't mean that much. Usually what they did, if you wanted to cycle somebody through for intelligence work, you, you gave them a commission of what was called the Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve. And that's basically where you pick people who had no prior military experience, no naval experience, and you just gave them a gentleman's commission. But this would indicate that at some point, I don't know when, this is one of the things that I'm still looking for, but that at some point he got one of those, which is never mentioned or acknowledged anywhere else except in this one classified survey of the British population. Right. So there is this, this history of connection be, between them. And, and then it really becomes this process of trying to figure out what he's doing and, and how this intelligence works. Now, none of this, by the way, means that Crowley wasn't, wasn't an occultist. Doesn't mean that he didn't believe in magic. Doesn't mean that he did. Okay. Doesn't prove anything. Because 
it's the same sort of thing. People are seldom just one thing or another. Right. So, because that's, that's one of the things that some people, there have been those on the, on the Thelemite end of things, you know, Thelemites being those who follow Crowley's religion or teachings, however you want to describe them, who basically were somewhat displeased because they thought that what I was saying was that his whole, his whole occultist shtick was, was fake. Mm. It was just a cover for other activity, that it wasn't really serious, that he didn't really believe any of these things. And, you know, which isn't good because the stuff that I practiced and believed in for years, you're basically saying is BS. No, <laughs> that's not that's not what I'm saying at all. I might say that in other cases, but not in this one. Okay. I, I had seen nothing to suggest that he wasn't entirely sincere about his beliefs, although, frankly, to me, and I'm not a Thelemite, don't have anything against him. But I'm not not a Catholic either. Okay, just but it would just seem to me that he often was very confused about that. And Crowley, in that sense, it's something I've seen elsewhere. You know, I've run into various people who've had what they would call mystical experiences. You know, life transforming mystical experiences. They see something, or something happens to them, and yet. In all the cases that I've known of, nobody seems really entirely sure of what happened. One of the things you can't really do with that is to explain to somebody else exactly what happened. Right. And, you know, I, you know, I would never say, I'm not going to, I don't know whether I ever have anything to miss. I've had some weird things happen. And to ever try to sit down and explain them, they either sound completely nonsensical or... They don't really, I'm not really describing what it was that I'm, it's like a dream. Well, I'll tell you what, the listeners of the show and myself know that feeling all too well. This is the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, so it's my own feeling. You you, you try to explain this happened to me and it just sounds like, you know, other people, they don't get it because it's, the closest I've ever compared it is it's like trying to describe a dream that you just had and it's quite vivid. But even while you're trying to describe it, it's sort of melting. Right. It it doesn't you you can't describe it. You you lose track of it and what seemed to make perfect sense doesn't make sense anymore. Right. So that that's and, and in in you know, reading through other biographies of him, looking at his autobiography, that's that's what often struck me is that Crowley seemed to have had at various points in his life encounters with the other world with this sort of hidden domain, you know, gods, spirits, demons, whatever they are. He said, you know, these things sort of reached out to him, but then they did their typical thing of never coming back or never coming back in the same way. Right. And there's one, I can't remember where, but if you were to look around, he, he basically laments that, you know, the, what he calls the secret chiefs had sort of reached out to him and seemed to give him this kind of mission, and then they just went away. And that he spent the rest of his life trying trying to get back to that, trying right. to reconnect. And I'm not really sure that he ever did. So he came across to me, you know, they, they, they often the attitude towards Crowley is that he's one of two things. He's either some kind of a cult saint, you know, or he's the wickedest man in the world which is what he was generally accused of in his lifetime. For much of his life, he, he kind of liked the bad boy image. He cultivated that. 
But then, you know, by the time he was getting older, by the time the 1930s rolled around, the problem was he wanted to attain a certain degree of respect or at least respectability. And now you've got this reputation that you went out of your way to cultivate and which you can't get that stink off of you that easily. And he never does. And and this, I think, was part of his big frustration. This was why he was saying, you know, look, I did. I served my country for whatever reasons I did so. I, I, I did these things, which I can't talk about, which I'm forbidden to actually say, but I, I, I deserve some kind of recognition, which he felt he, he could never really get. And instead, everything from the official effort was always to sort of cover that up. And, and I'm there are a couple of reasons. One is that nobody in any official British position wanted to admit that the government had ever had anything to do with this person who was held to be, you know, the wickedest man in the world, a, you know, child murdering Satanist. <laughs> he wasn't. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's every every possible thing you could think, but that's one of the things that gets attached to him. Right. You know, drinking cat's blood, you know, sacrificing babies was just you know, one of the, but, you know, it, it's kind of hard to, you know, you don't have Oprah. He didn't have Oprah where he could go on and talk to an audience and explain to them that he really wasn't a baby sacrificer. But nevertheless, he tried that through the British press. It never really worked. So he also seemed to be someone who was, I think, increasingly sort of dissatisfied. And he had this whole part of his life that he could never reveal, which to him in some ways, I think, was always the kind of more honorable thing that he'd done. There's also this, this this sort of two sides to 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 people that you know. On the one hand, you've got the Crowley who is the the iconoclast, you know, the the poster boy for 20th century sexual and psychic liberation. You know, an early advocate and enthusiastic user of recreational drugs. Okay, Crowley is a pioneer in all sorts of these things. Right. But on the other hand, he would also admit in some cases that what he really wanted to be more than anything else was an English country gentleman. So there's this kind of two sides to people. I think you can often find that in many people is that, you know, within someone who outwardly expresses a, a kind of radical approach, there is some kind of inner longing for this conservative stability. Mm. They're, they're, they're reacting to something in themselves. In the same way that you can find people who often seem to have a very straight-laced conservative attitude, you know, you get them a little riled up or a couple of drinks into them, and you can find a a, a, a radical side you wouldn't necessarily expect. Right. Human beings are just contradictions. Right? They are, you know, the ability to hold two completely incompatible views at the same time it's a key part of the of the human psyche. It's certainly part of mine. There we go. So that, that has to be part of everyone else's. Yeah. Um, a couple things that I want to revisit before we jump off yeah. the topic of Crowley. The Lusitania is often cited as like the big pull to get America involved with the, you know, European conflict at the time. You mentioned Crowley being a part of the Navy at that time. That was like the international division of any military, right? The Navy was the one who would go the far places and explore and, and given Crowley's 
mountaineering experience it seemed to, to fit he's kind of uh, a jack of all trades and you did a great job of of painting that picture i do want to bring that up that he wasn't a slouch he was certainly someone who could travel far distances and do what we would consider a proper spy's job of of investigating and adventuring going to foreign lands it was kind of interesting too to note that a lot of people from his social status or class were participating in those kind of activities and and like you mentioned he did kind of have this longing to want to be a part of that i think his his you know reckless and explicit childhood probably put the the bad boy thing into that you know i'm sure you've heard of the story where he got the the nickname the wicked or the beast 666 from his mother you know and and i've heard stories that that woman that he was sleeping with the maid the chambermaid ended up being one of Jack the Ripper's victims. Have you heard uh, anything to corroborate that? I've heard that. I don't think there's any there's any truth to that. I mean, th- there have even been people who've tried to turn Crowley into being Jack the Ripper. Mm. He was 11 years old. I mean, that, that's that's one of those things you... <laughs> right. That's you always have to check up on that. When someone says, ah, someone was there. Well, you, you figure out, you find out that they weren't born yet. That makes it kind of problematic. Right. Definitely, there was a extremely complicated relationship with his mother. So, I mean, you know, here is some little background that comes in. Crowley was born into what we would now call a strictly Christian fundamentalist family. Right. The Plymouth I mean, Brethren. Household, the Plymouth Brethren. You know, Plymouth Brethren, you know, one of those groups that, you know, they and you know, everybody who was part of them were going to go to heaven and the rest of you are all going to burn in hell. Right. Damn you. So... But, and his father was, family was pretty well off, made their money in brewing, by the way. That's, that's for the, uh, wow. the family fortune. But his father also branched out, of, he's branched out into real estate. So his father made money and then devoted the rest of his life to preaching the gospel. And I think his father, Edward Crowley Sr., died when Crowley was 10 or 11. At a psychologically fairly interesting age. And now here's the thing. Well, Crowley later had this bitter contention with his mother. He idealized his father. So here's a guy who, when he's 10, 11 years old, his father, whom he idolized, a preacher of the gospel, dies. So part of it is that dad never becomes anything other than the the idolized childhood figure that he was. But it's also worth continuing that what did Aleister Crowley eventually become? Well, he became a preacher of the gospel, not of the Plymouth Brethren gospel or the Christian gospel, but of a gospel that he invented on his own. Gospel of the new aeon. (laughs) Right. You know, the Thelema. It was, you know, I mean, Crowley, grandly, his aspiration was to become another Jesus or Muhammad. Right. Right. He thought he had received a new religious dispensation that, he never really, you know, didn't go too far, but he really follows through in that. So he comes out of this religious household, and if you look closely, he becomes a religious proselytizer himself. He follows in his father's footsteps. His relationship with his mother and then with his mother's brother, who was kind of this evil figure in his life who sent him off to horrible boarding schools, you know, the English public school system, was complicated. You know, you probably suspect that, you know, 
what's going on there, you know, to what degree there are, you know, you can, you can read all kinds of things into it, Oedipal complexes, love-hate relationship. Let's put it this way. He and his mother didn't get along. She called him, you little beast. But nevertheless, they still talk to each other. And when she died, she left him money. So that's part of what you're, you're always dealing with when you look at historical figures. You're dealing with, some, and in a way, it's important to consider their childhood and their family, because people never really ever get that far away from that. Mm, right. That, those, those are their basic relationships. They tend to influence the relationships they have with everyone else. For instance, if you look at Crowley's relationships with women, which tended to be unstable, abusive, some degree, some degree abusive, well, right. at least psychologically abusive. You know, right. Crowley's often accused of driving every woman he slept with to an insane asylum. I'd argue that probably most of them were headed in that direction anyway, but he didn't help. Right, right. <laughs> Think of it this way, you know. What kind of women are attracted to this guy? Like attracts I mean, like. Come on now. <laughs> so um, I don't think he can be blamed for all of their problems. But yes, I mean, he was, you know, he would bar, you know, never lend him money. He was someone, I think it was the writer, Dennis Wheatley, that said that the two, he said he sort of liked Crowley, but the two things that he would never do was to lend him money or leave him alone with his children. <laughs> and, and I don't think the latter was because he thought he was going to take him a sacrifice on a slab somewhere. But Crowley was, um, you know, it could be kind of scary. Okay. Presley had a tendency to tell sort of scary stories. And I can sympathize with that because I've been the uncle who does exactly the same thing. You know, I, I thought I was giving him a view, you know, but nevertheless, Paris didn't appreciate the scary story that kept the kids up for the next two weeks. Right. I think it was a learning experience, but there you go. <laughs> so all of those things have to be taken into, into consideration when, when you're trying to, to piece someone together. So cruelly, I have to admit, and again, I, I'm not a follower of his. I don't even know whether I would have liked him in person. He was an interesting person. But I, I came out of the whole thing with a certain degree of sympathy for him. I mean, this was a person who, again, was you know, largely responsible for all of the bad reputation that he had. And yet, it was, there was a real sort of beyond the whole sort of occult figure, wickedest man in the world. There was a fellow who in many ways was kind of confused and disappointed. And if he used and abused other people, there were people who used and abused him, not the least of which was the British government that he served. Right. Because they never treated him right. They never recognized what he did. They were either ashamed of him or there were various things that he was involved in that they never wanted to talk about. Well, and, and to bring back up the, the Lusitania, I mean, there was a oh, yeah. record that he was on that ship uh, only a couple of weeks before the whole incident happened. Have you looked into that any further? Well, he took the Lusitania over to the U.S. in October 1914. Okay. So the Lus Lusitania made a voyage back and forth across the Atlantic every month or so. Yeah, that's the way people traveled then. You didn't get on planes, you got on these big ships, and you take a week, a week to get from, from Liverpool to New York, which 
don't know, it sounds kind of cool to me. Anyway, certainly better than being crammed into a flying bus. Indeed. <laughs> that So he arrived in the Lusitania. And then in May 1915, it was torpedoed and sunk famously off the coast of Ireland. Now, what he did in the meantime was that he insinuated himself into a, a group of Germans. Now remember, the, the war starts in 1914. The United States does not enter World War I until the middle of 1917. And Crowley insinuated himself into a thing called the propaganda cabinet, which was involved some German diplomats. Primarily, the someone who was at the center of it was a guy by the name of George Sylvester Vierek, who was a German-American. And he published a magazine in New York called The Fatherland, which is pretty much, you know, what I call a pro-German magazine. It's a Probably his main German connection in New York was a writer and publisher by the name of George Sylvester Virak. And Virak introduced Crowley into this German propaganda group that was trying to figure out what the Germans wanted to do was to keep America from aligning itself with the British or the Allies generally. So they, they were looking for ways to influence American public opinion. So this was something, there's a kind of secret war which is going on in the U.S. before the U.S. comes in. And the British are using people like Crowley to influence British, to influence American opinion to join the Allied side, or at least support it. And the Germans were trying to find ways to counter that. So Crowley put himself forward as an export, expert on Anglo-Saxon mentality. Okay, so remember, America was much more, well, at least the ruling class in America in this period, it is pretty thoroughly Anglo-Saxon. So Crowley said, look, the Americans are, are, are kind of childish people. They have little, little involvement in world affairs. You know, they're not really a big power. And so what you need to do, the way to keep them out of the war is scare them. Okay, don't try to be nice. Treat them like children and therefore frighten them. And the, and the way to do that is to do – and one of the things that he proposed is that, you know, Think a big British liner. Like the Lusitania, you know, show them. You know, show them how determined Germany is. And when they see how determined Germany is, how ruthless, you know, the, the Deutschland can be, this will deter the kind of tepid Americans from getting involved in this. Right. And Crowley later considered this to be one of the great achievements. And, and felt that he had actually influenced the Germans that way, and which he thought was also his playing upon German mentality, which he now believed would, would buy directly into that. And therefore, so far as he was concerned, he believed that his advice to the Germans had influenced the decision to torpedo the Lusitania. Right. Which conveniently killed 128 Americans along with the others, and therefore alarmed. And that doesn't actually bring America into the war. It's going to be another two years before America enters the war. But it did poison Germany's reputation in the eyes of much of the American public. Right. Even though later a naval court of inquiry would rule that the Germans were completely justified in sinking the Lusitania because it was carrying war supplies. Which, by the way, the British Admiralty did deliberately. Okay, look, we got an ocean liner, so we can put a lot of war supplies on it. The Germans probably won't sink this because it will make them look bad. Or 
Maybe we want them to think it because it will make them look bad. Mm. <laughs> you have to think of it this way. There's a war on. A single attack on the Western Front could kill tens of thousands of British soldiers. So if the sacrifice of a thousand or two thousand civilian lives on an ocean liner could help win the war, in certain circles, that's a reasonable sacrifice to be made. Right. So Crowley believed that his efforts had moved the Germans in that direction, and I think to some degree it probably did. I'm not sure that he's the only you don't have to it's not like Alistair Crowley makes everything happen. But that's what he was working for, and let's put it this way. The result that he wanted, this is almost magical, remember? His definition of magic is causing change to occur in conformity with, with will. So if his will, and that of the British Admiralty, was to have the Germans commit some stupid provocative act, that's exactly what happened. Right. So later, in early 1917, as America broke diplomatic relations with Germany and moved closer to war, Crowley actually can buy in his diary, you know, where he put his own feelings down, that his, that his work in America had been achieved. So that's what he saw himself doing. He was a, he was a British double agent. He was an agent of influence. He had infiltrated the, the German propaganda network, and he had led them off in the direction he wanted them to go with the desired result eventually of bringing America into the war on the, if he saw it the right side. Now, all of that, I, I think it, it's one of the reasons why he believed that what he did was important and was meaningful. One of the reasons why it was frustrating to him that you can't talk about it. And I, I guess which brings up that question was that, well, if he did all this stuff, why wouldn't the Admiralty boast about it? I mean, why wouldn't they admit that? Well, the simple reason is, is that one of the basic rules in intelligence, as in so many other things, is to keep your mouth shut. Okay? There's a whole thing which is called tradecraft. And tradecraft is not so much what you do, but how you do things. And you don't talk about those things. Because you have to think of it this way. Let's say that the British government had revealed that, yes, Alistair Crowley, this guy otherwise even condemned in our own press as the wickedest man in the world, as, as an arch traitor, that was the other thing, you know, because he had, he had apparently committed treasonous acts, which note, he is never punished for in the least. Nothing officially ever happens to him. Right. Which is another tip off that something isn't quite right in this picture. So they said, yeah, he did this, you know. What are you going to admit? Are you going to admit that you infiltrated an agent into German sources that actually helped convince them, the Germans, to torpedo the Lusitania? In other words, you're going to commit, you're going to admit a certain degree of responsibility for that? No. They, that gives you an indication. The Lusitania is an indication why Crowley could never talk about what he did. Because imagine the can of worms that that would open. He could never admit what he did because once you did, then you'd have to explain all of this stuff, which gets pretty underhanded and sneaky and dirty. It's a little bit like the the talk, uh, the John Le Carre book, my favorite spy book, and actually spy movie is, is a thing called you know, The Spy That Came In From The Cold, and which is a, if you haven't seen it, is the most ruthless and unsentimental portrayal of espionage that I think that has ever been put on screen. 
And that's one of the things that whole film is about is, is people who were essentially brought in to do horrible things. But the idea is that, well, you know, the other side does horrible things and some counteract those. Sometimes we have to do these things as well. And that was, that was the, the world that, that, there was another part of it was another world that, that Crowley was was a part of, which could never really be acknowledged beyond that. He was he was involved in some fairly we could say dark stuff, right? Which the things that governments do that they never want to admit that they do. Yeah, one thing that came to mind is the frequent comparison between Aleister Crowley and John Dee, and we see much earlier. In English history, this John D. figure who plays the role of jack of all trades, very similar to Crowley in some ways, with a heavy emphasis on scientific innovation. In those days, that meant a lot of dabbling in what we would now consider occult arts. It seems like Crowley's almost carrying on that tradition. Some people even say John D. was a sort of innovator in the field of espionage itself. I think it's pretty clearly generally admitted that D and his sidekick, the guy that actually Crowley tends to identify with more than D is the sort of disreputable sidekick, mm. the the psychic that D had working for a guy named Edward Kelly. Right. And Kelly's Kelly, you know, was a forger. Now he, you know, he's an ex-con. <laughs> he was a guy with a criminal record. Who D took up with because what D wanted to do was to communicate with angels. He wanted to communicate with spirits that he thought were angels. And but he wasn't, he couldn't channel them. He couldn't speak to them directly. And Kelly claimed to be a, a psychic, a, you know, a medium is essentially what. And so he would go into a trance and the angels would talk to him and they would they would then the communications and the whole angelic language. Also, supposedly, according to Kelly, they also told him at one point that he and Dee should swap wives. <laughs> because it so happened that Dee had remarried and had a rather young, pretty wife, mm. which ever said the angels wish us to enjoy each other's wives. And you know what? Often the case. Dee went, Dee went along with that. His, his wife was not happy about it at all, wow. especially because she got pregnant. But at any rate. Wow. But, that, you know, that, that shows you what people can, can be. So they're, they then go off to Prague. So a lot of the stuff they do is that they leave England and they spend several years in Prague, which was the center of the happy, you know, of Catholic Europe. And it's, it's widely assumed, I don't think you'd ever do, you know, there's no piece of paper that says this, that the head of Queen Elizabeth's intelligence service at the time, a guy named Sir Francis Walsingham, Dispatched D and Kelly abroad in basically to spy on English Catholic exiles. Because remember, there's a whole Reformation thing going on. Elizabeth's a Protestant. English Catholics are constantly trying to kill her and overthrow her. And English Catholics had gone abroad to the same place, to the court of Emperor Rudolf, his most apostolic and Catholic majesty, to seek aid. So what Dee and Kelly did was it happened that Rudolf was also a great fan of the occult. And in fact, he had the, the greatest magical court in Europe 
and was surrounded by alchemists, astrologers. And so he welcomed them there and allowed them to engage in their activities, which they did. But at the same time, they were also in a perfect position to see every other English Catholic who came and went from Prague and reported that back to Walsingham. Right. So again, I, I think that is a, a good idea of how both their occult practices, which were real, which they were serious about, or at least D was, and the intelligence aspect complemented each other. It's not, a, it's not a matter of somebody doing one thing or another. They're doing both. They're simply accomplishing two ends at, at the same time. So yeah, there's, there's nothing new. The connection between occultism and intelligence is probably been around forever and it wasn't something that Crowley invented. The explanation for that is that both of them deal with secrets. Right. So all occult means, all the word means is hidden. Something which is occult is something which is hidden. So what you tend to find occultists doing is they're always trying to find these hidden things. They're always trying to find the secrets, talk to the angels, you know, create the philosopher's stone, but then also notice that they didn't turn around and they hide it again. So an, an occultist never discovers the secrets of the universe and then publishes in a book for everyone to read. No, they'll, they'll encode because the concept, the concept here is that the information is only for those worthy. Thus, this is why occultism tends to revolve around small, tight groups, you know, the ones we like to call cults, that they will often try to disguise occult information in various abstract language. And this is all because, you know, the common herd of people can't figure this stuff out. Now, compare that with what intelligence agencies do. They are constantly trying to figure out the occulted information of their opponents. But they, again, they never advertise that when they do. And they're also trying to protect their own secrets. So what you do in intelligence is it's all about getting the other guy's secrets and keeping your secrets secret from them. And that calls upon a huge amount of deception, which always runs this. Everything is about deception. Nothing is ever exactly what it appears to be, including people. Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And, you know, there's so many places we can go from here because I think the, the topic of, of secret societies, from my impression, and, and again, I'm an armchair researcher, you know, kind of putting this all together in the past 10 years of my life, 27 years old now. And one thing that stuck with me, you know, from a really early age was this concept of the mystery school as a good thing and then somewhere along the line that got perverted and why i say that is because at the same time i was you know rubbing shoulders with yale university and i was going to a community college in new haven and i had met people who would talk about skull and bones and that all became so much more real than anything you know i could read online because here it is right in front of me i can go and walk and look at the secret society buildings and at the same time i'm reading a book by mark booth who talks about how the mystery schools were keeping this you know ancient esoteric knowledge inherent to what it means to be spiritual as a, a human being keeping it secret like the old adage knowledge is power like you said, it needs to be preserved or, or encoded so those who are worthy will find it. 
do you think that that concept still works that way in same moral respect or do you think it's been perverted and inverted to you know only help let's say funnel the power into those same families who've been lucky enough to to be in those lineages that go as far back as ancient times well i think it's probably been inverted perverted and otherwise verted in every way you can possibly imagine because it's again the concept here is that knowledge is power so let's let's go back again to you know what i think is maybe crowley's most important insight and the one that sort of goes back to me is his definition of magic magic being this this force that can influence things and again to paraphrase it it's the art and science of causing change to occur in conformity with will so the simplest term that's mind over matter i mean that that's what you know anybody who goes into one of these cell self-affirmation is a form of magic now, anybody who's ever looked at them in the mirror and said, I'm going to have a really great day today. I'm going to do good at that interview. You know, you psych yourself up. Well, it, it, it's all trying to create. It's trying to create this image of what you want and then have that manifested. Now, let's suppose, let's just suppose for the sake of argument that that's possible. That one can individually or collectively through an application of intent. In other words, this is the type of thing. You have to have this intent. You have to know what you want, and you have to focus your mind on it. You have to focus energy on it, that you can alter reality. Now, keep in mind, I just didn't say that that was possible. I'm simply entertaining the idea that a lot of people, I mean, that's what from time immemorial people think they can do. I'll admit, I've never seen anybody do it, but let's assume just the idea that that's possible. Now, that's, that would be quite powerful if you had that, that ability, if you could even in subtle ways influence things. This doesn't mean you're going to turn a rabbit into a crocodile or you're going to move a mountain or do any of those things. It means... The, the focus of intent and the energy from that intent to shift things, maybe just ever so slightly in the direction you want them to go. And that would be a tremendous power. And it would not be a power that most people who had it would want to share with anybody else. I mean, consider for a second what might happen in that case. What might happen if everybody was using intent to try to shift reality in some degree? Then you got battling realities. Then, you know, chaos, cats dancing with dogs. Who knows what would happen in these cases? It, it, would, it would make the whole situation impossible because the only way that that could possibly work is to make sure that there are as few people as possible who are actually trying to bend reality. Because you don't want somebody else's intent interfering with yours. So if you figure out how to do that, you don't tell anybody else except very, very few. Because there can only be so many people trying to tweak reality. I mean, again, what would most people do with that? 
okay, finally you could actually change things. How are you going to change it? I mean, it would be like anything else. It would be for more or less probably trivial purposes. Right. So that's one of the reasons why you, you keep it secret. So I would certainly entertain the possibility that, well, certainly, definitely people believe that they can. There are people who believe, and that's all it takes. All it takes is people believing they can do something. And then they'll go, and then they'll act as if that's the case, whether it is or not. But if that is possible, that becomes one of the most important sort of psychic technologies that has ever existed. And I think that would give you an idea as to why it's so closely guarded and controlled and it is hidden from most people that was what was hidden away in the very earliest times and then you've also got there was a a french esotericist which is the way you know an occultist light in uh, in the early 20th century by the name of rene guinon and guinon is new crowley and others but guinon came up with this interesting idea he theorized that there were sort of two currents that were constantly at work and what what he called the the kind of genuine tradition which was a a current of esoteric or occult knowledge or information that was trying to lead people or at least those people who were worthy towards the truth a a, a true route of initiation into the mysteries but alongside that there was the counter tradition which created counter initiates and which whole purpose was to lead people away from the truth. Now, the thing is that both of those essentially were selling the same product. Think of it this way. Both of them are selling enlightenment. They are selling psychic and magical power. They, they access to all of this power, everything which is concealed in all of, all of these terms. But one is going to give you the real thing and one is going to give you a counterfeit. So that while there is this effort to enlighten, there is simultaneously this counter effort to re-obscure and to deceive. And those two things are very difficult to tell from each other. Because remember, they're both seemingly selling exactly the same thing and often talking about it in much the same way. But one is real, and the other is false. And that's what Guénon thought was the great sort of occult struggle in history, always between these two efforts, those who were trying to keep it covered up and those who were trying to reveal, you know, those who wanted to not reveal it to everybody, but at least make the general the information more available. And those who wanted to make sure that no one else would ever find this out and be able to use it against their interests. Right. <laughs> And that sets up, in, sets up in some ways an all too plausible contest. But, and, you know, can you prove that's true? I don't know. How would you do that? But you should perhaps keep in mind that it might be. So it's a, you know, it often seems to me, particularly as I've gotten older, is that, I mean, here's one of the things is that, you know, I just turned 70. And, Probably when I was 27, or certainly when I was 17, I can remember back. In many ways, things seemed a lot simpler. And, you know, I, in many ways, I was more certain of things when I was 17 
than I am at 70. Because things have not really become simpler. They've become more complicated and more nuanced. Things are more uncertain than they were previously. And what I've seen is that we basically live in a realm of possibilities. Something might or might not be true. It might or might not have happened. And that, I think, is in some ways what this concept of Crowleyan magic, this idea of intent, can influence. They can take something that might be true and move it into the true column. And they can take things that were manifested and in some way shift them over back into the realm of probability. So that reality is this huge, chaotic set of possibilities and that they're then manifested or brought into some kind of solid form through processes we don't really understand. I mean, this, this goes back to the whole, you know, it's like the men who stare at goats by John Ross. They, yeah, take things down to, here's something I just ran across and something I was writing at a, and a, a statement I'd never seen from Albert Einstein before. And Einstein, again, I'm paraphrasing, said that reality is an illusion, but an especially persistent one. Now, that's from Einstein, that, that reality is this kind of persistent illusion because the whole physical world that we perceive, that we interact with all the time, when you get to the atomic and subatomic levels, simply doesn't exist. Beneath the smallest elements of matter, there is no matter. Even if you think of atoms as having so sort of solid particles to them. And one person basically described, and if you're going to draw up an atom, you know, to make it big, basically visible, you know, maybe if you made it a mile across, the, the, the nucleus might be the size of a baseball, and then all the electrons would be like little tiny infinite grains of sand whirling around it. Now, imagine then matter composed of atoms, which are basically nothing. So any solid object, you know, the wall that you're pressing your hand against, the table, everything around you, your own body is largely composed of nothing. That the only things there are these infinitesimal small elements of matter that, again, at a certain level don't even exist. So literally, it is a kind of illusion that our whole sense of, of, of a kind of solid universe is something that is out of nothing. It's literally something out of the greatest magical trick in the cosmos is the creation of all of this out of nothing. So that gets kind of spooky. <laughs> it may be another one of those things. It may give you an idea is that since all of this reality is created out of nothing, how do you do that? How do you take nothing and then congeal it into these different forms? Maybe that's another one of the big occult secrets mm. that nobody is supposed to catch on to. Because maybe it goes beyond then tweaking reality from one direction or another to simply creating it. 
I mean, you know, they would argue that is the godlike power. But then remember, the, the ultimate goal of any good alchemist is not to turn lead into gold, but to turn himself into God. Right. And then to be able to, to achieve those kind, of, those kind of creative powers. But, you know, makes it interesting, doesn't it? I would say it makes it liberating, you know, and I'm not, I'm not a, an occultist. I would probably be more comfortable describing myself as an esotericist for sure. You know, it seems like the safer category to be in, but yeah, I found that concept very liberating, you know, the seven hermetic laws and the, and the principle of mentalism, I think is much more available nowadays. I remember seeing that book, the three initiates as the author being really fascinated at a young age, who are these, you know, initiates, what are they initiated to, you know, at that age of 17, you know, as you put it. I thought I knew everything. I thought I, you know, the world was, was solid. It was predictable, but we are living in a quite literally a sea of energy, a sea of illusion is a, is a more fantastic way to put it. I'm kind of, I want to grab my notes here. I pointed out the Freemason, Robert McCoy, he, he wrote the dictionary of Freemasonry. I don't know if it's the dictionary, but it's a dictionary. And he puts secret societies, he gives it a really interesting definition. All the great associations of antiquity, the objects of which were to civilize and improve the condition of mankind, were secret societies. They were called mysteries. The mysteries of India, Egypt, Greece, etc. were secret orders, great educational institutions established for the advancement of men in wisdom and virtue. It goes on further, but I feel like that paints it in such a different light than what you'll find if you go and look on the internet and see, you know, what people are writing about secret societies. It's all doom and gloom and, and they're, they're controlling us. But when you understand it as, as well as you do, I, I wonder what are your thoughts on the origins and, and how it, it manifests now in modern society? Well, I gave a at the University of Idaho that I retired from a couple of years ago, a, I, I taught a course which I always kind of enter on uh, conspiracies and secret societies in history. <laughs> so I was always kind of amazed that I got away with teaching that <laughs> at a state university. I mean, no, it was never. And the reason I got away with it was because it, it drew a large enrollment. Okay, that's why. You know, you get people in the classes. All right, there you go. Nobody's going nobody's gonna to question what it is that you do. But it was, I would generally tell people on the first day of that class, what this class is really about is that we're investigating the nature of reality. Because that's what ultimately, now all of these mystery schools, all of the, the, uh, even the, uh, the concept of, the concept of conspiracy is that there are things going on out there that we don't understand, which is influencing what reality is. So how does this, how does all of this stuff actually work? So I, I came up with basic, one of the things you have to have when you're looking at anything is you have to come up with some kind of basic definition. All right. So the question was, we're talking, we're going to talk about secret societies. What do I mean by that? This may not be what somebody else means by it, but here's one of the, the, the basic categories is that one, uh, secret societies are selectively recruited. They're not for everybody. Okay, it's not the Boy Scouts. It's only certain people are chosen 
in this. So to give you actually an example from something you're mentioning, Freemasonry, which to me is really kind of at the low end. To, get, to become a Freemason, you generally are nominated by somebody else. And then the traditional rule, it does vary, I've been told, is that everybody in the lodge has to agree. So you are chosen. Now, this is one of the things that also makes it special because when you're chosen to do something, you're special. Everybody wants to be special. Think of it this way. If you were invited to join a club that everybody was invited to join, what's special about that? But if you're invited to join a club that most other people can't get into, well, that I can even give you a simpler example of it from collegiate life, fraternities and sororities. Fraternities and sororities are perfect examples of low-level secret societies. They pick their members. Some people get picked, others don't. You are then considered to have been privileged by being asked to be a member of this organization. So, one, secret societies are selective in who they pick. Two, they require oaths of of obedience and secrecy, and they have some type of initiation. So one of the first things that you're told is that you don't talk about what goes on within the organization. So you can tell people that you're a Freemason, but you never discuss what actually goes on in lodge meetings. And you don't go out and tell people about the wonderful ritual that you just took place. Okay. Those are the, those are, those are just for you. This is only the people who are chosen know these type of things. And in the way, some way, certainly you don't talk about things that necessarily go on at frat parties. Right. I mean, look, if you look at fraternities and sororities, their, their names, you don't even know what their names are because what you get are Greek letters. First of all, they're written in an alphabet that no one really understands. And that each of those letters stands for words that no one tells you what they are. That's one of the things that you learn. It's the kind of secret motto of the, of the organization. And, you know, so if other people tend to think that people in fraternities and sororities are snobs who think they're better than everybody else, well, yeah, they do kind of, okay? It's not the whole point of having this kind of exclusive. So there's the exclusivity, you're sworn to secrecy, you are, you know, you, the initiations are usually, you know, initiations can be tough, they can be lenient, but they're all to prove one thing. As to whether or not this person basically has the characteristics that we would want to have. Initiations are a test. They're a test of courage. They're a test of character. There's even, you know, I I knew a, not a Freemason either. In fact, I don't belong to any secret societies. And I never belonged to a fraternity or sorority. I never even belonged to the Boy Scouts. And here's why. Because I would assume to me that one, as soon as you're in it, somebody was telling you what to do. There are rules and there are things you can do this and you can't do that. And I just don't like that. So I'm not going to join, which is the reason why they're fascinating to me. Because I can't figure out where the hell people want to do that. <laughs> why, why, why would I subject myself to this cult-like, this cult-like rule? But I asked a Freemason friend of mine, I said, look, I'm not a Freemason. I can go out on the internet. In fact, even before the internet, I could go find a book that would tell me the details of every one of your rituals. I can, I, you know, and I said, I can tell you exactly what you do in your initiation rituals. And we went through and he goes, yeah, that's basically right. I go, well, so 
what's what's all the secrecy about? And he made a very interesting point. He goes, it isn't that Cowans, which is the term for inquisitive, nosy people who want the secrets of Freemasonry without ever being initiated, like me. It isn't the fact that people can't figure out what goes on in the rituals. Because if other things, there have always been unfaithful people who were admitted to the lodge who will go out and blab. So the secrets of Freemasonry have never been secret. Anyone can find them out. The reason for the oaths, he argued, is that it's a test on that person. So you are admitted to the society and you're sworn to never divulge these things. And therefore, if you keep your faith, if you never divulge them, even though the whole world may know them, they don't know them because you told them. It's a test of your loyalty. It's a test of your character. So if you go out and tell people what the rituals are, you haven't really told them anything they couldn't find out anyway. Well, you have proven is that you're untrustworthy and that that knowledge should never have been given to begin. So there's, there's this test upon who the, who the people are. The other thing that often goes with this is that you have your loyalty to people within this organization is special and in some ways transcends loyalties to anything else. You now have an obligation. One of the things to look for is that in almost all what are called secret societies, fraternal orders, whatever you might call it, notice the fact that people almost always refer to other people in them as brother or sister. It's hard to find a case where they don't. Brother this, brother that, brother Freemason, fraternity brothers, sorority sisters. And what it's doing, what these, what these societies create is they create artificial families. So you're initiated into a group that not only swears you to secrecy and gives you some kind of special knowledge, but you now all become, figuratively at least, or spiritually at least, brothers and sisters. Which means that this organization, at the very least, commands the same loyalty that your own family would command. I've also sometimes said that families themselves are the, are the real models for all secret societies. I mean, I think most people who are listening were probably told at some point that you don't tell people outside the family about certain things, right? This stays within the family. You don't go talking about, you know, you know. Your Aunt Mabel may be crazy and we might have her locked in the attic, but you don't go tell other people about that. Okay, this is something you never talk. And that's the other thing you can find is that families usually have peculiar little rituals. All right. You don't notice this in your own family because your own family is the normal world. You will notice this if you marry into someone else's family and then you encounter the weird world of in-laws and then go spend Christmas with your in-laws where they just do ungodly things. All right. just like, <laughs> I encountered this. The first set of in-laws, uh, well, let's say, I encountered a group of people who opened their presents on Christmas Eve. <laughs> now, I know to some people out there, that may be the normal thing to do. But to me, it wasn't. This was, you know, I don't know. I don't know what that was. 
was like saying the mass backwards or something. But it was, you know, it's just like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Why would someone do that? But to them, that was all part of all part of the, the rituals they had. So this, I think, is an important thing. There's nothing weird or unnatural about secret societies. It's just the way people are. And so you're taking all of it. You're taking this desire to belong, this desire to be special, the desire to be part of a family, the desire to be validated by other people around you, and you now create this artificial organization out of it. And it's an excellent way to motivate and control people. I See, agree. Nothing, nothing weird about it at all, really. Yeah, no, this name, the name of the podcast wouldn't exist if that concept wasn't <laughs> true. So there's nothing, you know, I'd argue that there's nothing inherently evil or sneaky. There, there is this element of secrecy and exclusivity, mm. but that's what people want. I mean, you know, you kind of figure out at some point, you can't really be friends with everybody. I mean, whether we like it or not, most of the vast majority of people we contact just remain strangers in some way. You just, you just kind of have to edit them out unless you're dealing with them. And so there are relatively few people that you really form close bonds with. And yeah, this, this, it's usually this kind of ritual you go through in, in friendships with people. I don't know. I have found that if I've just met someone and they suddenly start telling me intimate details of their lives, that's sort of like, we haven't really gotten to that stage yet. Okay, let's just go there. So those are all kind of things that that have to be developed gradually. This this a certain degree of, of trust which comes in. That's the other thing that a secret society, you know, because people in this organization have presumably been vetted. That, that probably they're somewhat like-minded or they wouldn't have picked you to begin with. The one thing you're supposed to be able to do, you know, the one thing you're supposed to be able to depend upon in a brother Freemason is that they'll back you up. They're sworn to do that. These are people who have sworn an oath that if you come to them and ask them for help sincerely, they're obligated by that oath to help you. Now, that doesn't absolutely mean that they will, but it means that they don't. They have broken their oath. So it depends on how you, you seriously, you take that. But so there's nothing inherently evil or harmful in this. It's just a basic way, but it's, then you can see how it's not too difficult to turn it that way if you want to. Right. Right. You got a, a bad apple in there as a leader too, you know, somebody with sociopathic tendencies or megalomania, maybe like in the case of uh, Crowley with the Golden Dawn, you know, he kind of came in there and stirred things up and, and caused the whole, he wasn't the only cause, but you know, eventually the Golden Dawn broke up into multiple different offshoots and it wasn't. Yeah, they probably would have gone, but those, those groups always tend to go that route sooner or later. Right. The problem is you tend to have a lot of high-powered personalities. That becomes the thing that will almost always break an organization apart, whether it's a band or a secret society, when there's a conflict between egos. Somebody, you know, people eventually, there has to be some kind of leadership. There's some sort of, you know, the other thing about human beings is that, you know, we're, there's a pecking order. And there are people who will subordinate themselves to others, and there are people who won't. 
And, you know, I'd say that I'm probably one of those people that good, bad, or indifferent has a difficulty subordinating myself to others. And it's, it's one of those things I found that I tend to be, I almost inevitably become disillusioned with my superiors. That, you know, people who are supposed to be symbols of control and, and authority, you know, usually that kind of breaks down to some degree. Right. Now, someone, and I'm sure someone would, that all goes back to my relationship with my dad, which I will not say anything more about. But I think that in some ways is a kind of template for what may have have followed. Uh, It means I would often put sort of high expectations on people who were supposed to be symbols of authority. And when they didn't live up to that, I lost faith in them. Right. And that's the reason why being part of something of this type of organization would just be, uh, doesn't really work for me because I, I, I probably couldn't mean, you know, it just doesn't fit with my particular outlook on that. And so it's not, you can look at, I mean, let's look at another organization that recruited people, ISIS, Islamic State. Okay, that's both a religion, but it also certainly functions as, as a secret society. Not that it's secret, but its operations are all secret. People are sworn to great loyalty. Uh, and on the one hand, it claims to be motivating people for the best of all possible causes, which is to bring about the, the ultimate uh, redemption and peace of the world through subjecting it all to the rule of Islam. Okay, and that's the, the, the only thing that's wrong with the world is that it's not completely Islamic. And that once Islamic law and ideas reign everywhere, there will be peace because it reconciles all conflicts between people. So it's just all these stupid people who will not submit to Islam who are the cause of conflict. Therefore, they must be killed or brought into line as a means of doing so. So on the one hand, you're told that the goal in this organization is is to bring about the ultimate liberation of humanity. But to do that, you're going to have to kill people. You're going to have to commit acts of horrific violence. And if you look at that, you can see how often that's been told. That's the same thing that communism told people. The goal here is the ultimate liberation of human beings from exploitation. What goal can be greater from that? But here is the kind of trick. The higher the goal of the organization, the higher your ideal, the more crimes you will commit or you can commit. And it's, it's a, the phrase that I've often used for that, that I always tell students as you come across, is that to the pure, all things are pure. And it goes back to the trial of a fellow by the name of Fra Dolcino, who was a one-time Catholic priest in 13th century Italy. And uh, he became a heretic. He broke away from the church and he collected a bunch of followers. You know, he became a cult leader, a kind of Jim Jones, and proclaimed that the, the church was false, society was corrupt, God was angry with everyone, we are the only true followers. And they formed a, a commune in the mountains, and then they just began to support themselves, going down the towns in the valley and doing horrible things, murdering and stealing. 
because they now considered that that all people who were not part of their group were lesser beings and deserve this to happen to them. And therefore, we can go and can. So Frondolcino was eventually caught and brought before the Inquisition, which was not a good place for him to be. And he was put on trial. You know, they said, look, you, you purport to be a Christian. You purport to be a child of God. And how can you justify doing all of these things? And his reply to that was that to, to the pure, all things are pure. That the purity of my motives purifies all the actions committed in its name. And I think once you've heard that, you, you can see that use, they'll never use the term, the pure, all things are pure, but you'll see it again and again and again. Everyone, I would even argue that the Nazis proclaimed the same thing. You know, they, they were on a mission. They were on a mission to redeem the world for the, the people for whom it should be redeemed and that all the terrible things they did were for some ultimate good. Right. To the pure, all things are pure. It's, it's funny you mentioned that. I was just reading a, a book by Lewis Spence and he was writing about the occult origins of the, you know, the Nazi motivation into the war. And, you know, this whole idea, obviously, of Aryan supremacy, it, it goes back to this Teutonic Knights and, and, you know, that's a very steeped in occult, you know, culture. It's very occult, if we will. And, you know, what this brings back to mind, something we were touching on before is this concept of will and how, you know, when you understand how magic works and you can shape your will or shape reality with your will, there's a certain force that tries to get a lot of people's will in concert with that one agenda or that will to do very bad things as you're putting it, you know, to the pure, all things are, are pure. And I think that is something we see in a lot of unfortunately tragic uh, moments in history, that sort of fervor of, well, we're doing this with a, a divine right. Yeah, people who do evil things almost never think that they're doing evil things. The evil in history is done by people who think they're doing good and who think that the ultimate goal justifies every action that they take. I mean, it was the guy who was the first chief of uh, you know Soviet intelligence, what would become the KGB, Felix Zerzhinsky, Iron Felix, head of the Cheka. His whole job was to stamp out counter-revolution and anything that opposed the, the advance of, of communism, you know, put it pretty simply. Every, anything which serves the interests of the revolution is good. Anything which impedes the interests of the revolution is bad. Right. That's the only morality that we recognize. And thus, since the revolution and its goals represent the ultimate good, nothing done in its name is bad. It's all sort of, you know, again, it goes back to like what, you know, Le Carre's semi-fictional chief of British intelligence told Alec Lemus and the spy who came in from the gold. In order to combat these evil things, we must do evil things ourselves with the idea that ultimately it serves a better cause. But in the meantime, we must lie and cheat and steal and deceive. Right. That's our job. Yeah. And it just seems that this espionage and, and the, everything you've laid out with this psychology of secret societies, it just seems to play 
uh, so close to to everything we see in history, you can interpret it with this lens and, and find a deeper truth. I know we're kind of coming to the end here, so I don't know if we'll have time to get into to Sidney Riley, but is there anything you've been working on lately that's of interest, something that you're coming out with uh, in the future, any books planned? What's What's going on as of lately for you? Well, yeah, I, I can engage in some shameless self-promotion here. So <laughs> since retiring, actually just before I retired, I, I started doing some work for an outfit called The Great Courses, which I had never heard of until they approached me. And what they wanted me to do was to do what they called The Course, which is basically a video series on secret societies. So for anybody who is interested, if you go to the Great Courses website, uh, which has also recently renamed itself Wondrium, W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M, but the Great Courses, you can find it. Um, there is a 24-episode course called The Real History of Secret Societies. I guess as opposed to the false history of secrets, but that's, that's the name of the course, which covers everything from, you know, Templars, assassins, Freemasons, Rosicrucians, the Bavarian Illuminati, plus a whole variety of other ones that you've never heard of. But again, brings in much of the, the things we've been talking about here. And then earlier this year in June, a second course came out, a 12 episode course called Crimes of the Century, a Selective History of Infamy, which is a look at basically an historical re-examination of various murders that took place. This is sort of the, in the true crime genre. And that includes things like Lindbergh kidnapping, assassination of Franz Ferdinand, assassination of Leon Trotsky, so some of those, but then also probably things that people may not have run across, like the Papan sisters, who are these two. Well, you ever seen any shows or programs that feature a couple of weird maids, you know, kind of creepy maids who kill their employers? Well, this is where this comes from. Okay? okay, the whole idea of murderous maids comes from the Papan sisters, who were these two sisters that were employed as maids in a affluent household, and then just for reasons that no one ever figures out and they can never describe, horrifically murder the lady of the house and her daughter. And, and that became a big deal in France in the early 1930s, it, it sort of divided the whole country. So whether these, these the Papan sisters were objects of sympathy, whether they were abused victims, whether they were responding to something, or whether they were just, you know, crazy psychopaths. And, and none of that is, to me, this is one of the more interesting ones because you can never figure out what motivated them to do this. And it's... Um, so there are that. Also, there's you know a variety of grotesque serial killers from Weimar Germany, some other, but there's this whole variety. And then I'm working on one now. I'm actually just completing the last script for the last episode that will probably be shot sometime next year in The Secrets of the Occult, which is, man, that's a big subject. So again... It won't encompass everything, but if we go through that and other things I've been, so those, those are most sort of the, the commercial venues, which, you know, anybody who was interested, you know, can, can go and take a look at those against the great courses or Wondrium. And then I've been working on, you know, and it, 
in some ways, it touches upon what you mentioned about Sidney Riley. I don't want to go into too much here. Riley is often, you know, the thing you read about Sidney Riley is, oh, he was, he was a spy who was the role model for James Bond, which is total BS, okay? That is not true at all. Not at all. There's nothing like that. But the real character is much more complicated. But for some reason, most of the historical characters I've investigated, and in this case, I'd say Crowley is one of the more open, usually they're pathological liars. And that was the case with Riley. He, he consistently lied about who he was. He's not Riley. That's not even his name. There was no Sydney. It's, that was the name on a passport he was given by Scotland Yard so he could get out of England because he'd become compromised as a double agent and they were sending him off to the Far East. So they just invented this and gave it to him. And that's how he became this person. And there are different theories about who he originally was, but you never really know for sure because he would always tell slightly different stories. The whole why, I mean, nothing he will say about himself is ever entirely straight which makes it very frustrating but it also makes it infinitely fascinating to figure out who they are but riley is maybe a subject for another time because again it's a rabbit hole that goes deep but in the same sort of vein i became interested in a fellow that some of your listeners may have heard of maybe you by the name of george hunt williamson never heard of him well, if you go back and you look at the kind of early history and literature of the UFO phenomenon, if you go back to the 1950s, early 1960s, Williamson was, was a fairly big name on the American saucer scene, wrote a number of books, and which, which became and still are fairly popular in that whole you never, you know, he's one of the few guys that never claimed to ride on a flying saucer or actually meet a real alien, but he had all kinds of ideas about where they came from. But all of his ideas, his whole concept is, is deeply based in occultism, basically in theosophy. Right. And in fact, my whole argument is if you go back and look at the whole sort of early saucer scene, one of the things you'll notice is that in almost every case, the aliens are all kind of, you know, like beautiful people who just want to, what do they want to do? They want to help mankind. They want to, they want to bring us all kinds of special knowledge. And yeah, we've, we've come to you because somehow we see, we've picked you out and to impart this knowledge to and to take you for a ride in our flying saucer. You ever notice that the special knowledge never actually seems to appear? <laughs> well, it's reminding and, me of a theme of the secret society. You know, you are the chosen one. It's like you, a galactic see, secret society. You know, all you have to do is get some most people's attention to tell them you're special. You're yeah. special. Okay. <laughs> and until the school started telling everybody they were special, which destroyed the whole thing. So, but it's this, it's, it's theosophy. That's what it is. It's just this, I mean, the ascended masters. Okay. The ascended masters are now the space brothers and the space brothers have all kinds of cool knowledge and they're all going to come down and they're going to impart this to us. We just have to do everything that they say. So George Hunt Williamson became a proponent of this whole thing. Before it all began to, even he, towards the end of his career, began to think that, well, sometimes maybe there are bad aliens as well. You know, maybe there's space brothers who aren't as nice as they pretend they are, and maybe we should watch out for them. But, and notice how that's all since changed when they've now become, you know, more like this, the, the evil gray aliens that, you know, anal probes. Okay, so you're back in the 50s, no anal probes as far as I know. Cattle mutilations. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, you know, there, there seem to be a number of people who claim to be having sex with aliens, but nevertheless, pleasantly, as opposed to any in an anal proby way. <laughs> so it's all kind of sweetness and light, and they're all the space brothers are going are going to save us. So that's one of the things that I noticed. And, and this, you know, I admit it's a pretty new thing for me because up until I got interested in Williamson, the whole sort of saucer UFO thing was something I really wouldn't, you know, I just didn't really want to get into that because it just seemed to be, yeah, you're going to have to wade through a lot of BS. And you do. Maybe. Not saying that there's, you know, I'm not saying that there's nothing to it. I'm just saying that there's not a lot. Okay. And any kind of saw it's it's like, you know, reality at a certain level, it just kind of ceases to exist. So Williamson was this this kind of big figure in this. And then he completely faded away. So in the early 1960s, he just vanishes. And the reason he vanished is because he, he changed his name and he became a completely different person. He was no longer George Hunt Williamson. He was now Prince Michel Dobrinovich, heir to the throne of Serbia. <laughs> okay. And and that's and what intrigued me about this is that when I was in graduate school at the University of California, Santa Barbara in the 1970s, I was part of a thing called the Balkan Studies Program. You know, it was just my professor was a Yugoslav emigre. And so and at some sort of Balkan studies meeting. I can't remember exactly what the context of it was. Someone introduced me to this guy and they said, Oh, this is Michelle Debrinovich. And I sort of, you know, shook this guy's hand. So I met him for like a nanosecond. But then it was like, Oh, so that's the guy that was the flying saucer guy in the 50s. And I met him. Yeah. So who is this guy, really? So that got me intrigued to try to figure out who he was and how George Hunt Williamson became Prince Michel de Brinovich and how that whole process came in. And then you jump down the rabbit hole. And then you begin to find things like, well, all sorts of interesting details, like the fact that he was a lieutenant in the army for 38 days. Gets a commission in the U.S. Army in 1949, goes off for training in Fort Benning, Georgia, in an infantry course, doesn't complete it, and is out and back home 38 days later. And yet, his commission is not exactly voided. It just becomes inactive. <laughs> now, the thing is, is that through my work in espionage, I'd seen things like this before, where someone, you know, it's a bit like Crowley at some point must have been given a commission to sort of give in a certain amount of, you know, because in some way, if the, you know, proverbial excrement hits the fan, they can brandish this card that I'm actually an officer in some one form or another. So... Things in Williamson's case began to come. The closer you began to look, I began to find all of these things that looked very suspiciously to me like intelligence connections. Like a very long relationship using both names in the Civil Air Patrol. Eventually becoming a lieutenant colonel in this. 
I found it odd that even though he was born George Leonard Williamson, that's what his real name was, Jr., in Chicago, that he is, and then was known as George Hunt Williamson, that his remains are today immured in Arlington Cemetery under the name Michelle Debrinovich, Captain, U.S. Army, Infantry. Wow. That's a name under which he never served. Okay, that's on none of his military discharge papers. He never served under the name Dobrinovich, and he was an infantry lieutenant for 38 days. But that's how he's buried in Arlington. Wow. So how does that type of thing happen? And then all sorts of things. He eventually forms his own church. He becomes a, he's a wandering bishop. I don't know if you've ever heard of those before. Sounds like some sort of missionary. Well, it goes, you know, in, in the early history of Christianity, a bishop anointed other people as bishops. This is where it all comes from. So if I'm a bishop, I can lay on hands and someone else is a bishop. Right. Now, technically, a couple of other bishops are supposed to be watching. But nevertheless, minimally, that's all you have to do. One bishop creates another bishop. So what happens somewhere along the line is that there are these lines of successions of bishops that are not actually connected to any particular church. That is, they're not really Roman Catholic or Orthodox. They're called Episcopi Vagantes, wandering bishops, because while they actually have been consecrated as a bishop, they are not really bound to any particular church. And there's oodles of them. There are these whole succession of people. And for some reason in the 20th century, they infest intelligence activity. <laughs> right. Probably because someone who claims to be a religious figure, like a reporter or an explorer, can be anywhere at any time without raising a lot of questions. Mm. Missionary work. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, Jesuits, I'm sure you've looked into them. That That's oh, yeah. what kind of comes to mind when you put that out there like that. Yeah, but these, these wandering bishops are the just a strange. So you'll, you'll find these guys who are the heads of things that there's some, they'll form some kind of church, which they're the only member of. Mm. And, and that, that's, that's what Dobrinovich, in addition to being the claim to be the heir of the, of the, uh, kingdom of Serbia or all of Yugoslavia at that point. He also ran his own chapel in, in, you know, Montecito outside Santa Barbara. He was conveniently at that time married to a, a kind of B grade movie star. So, but and yeah, I, I found out he's generally credited with three wives. I found he actually had five, but, but, uh, justice, you know, it just gets stranger and stranger and stranger. But the thing is that people are doing this for a reason. I mean, what you realize in all of this is that it's not just one crazy person running around doing this because they have to be accredited and enabled by other people. Right. See, to, to become a, a bishop, you have to be consecrated by another bishop in order to, you know, get be buried under that name in Arlington. At some point, you have to have been given a commission in the U.S. Army and then somehow let out of it. For purposes that aren't entirely clear. Yes. And then you find that this person for years is a very influential figure on the UFO scene. 
And you have to ask yourself, what was his purpose in doing so? Did he truly believe these things or is he a source of disinformation? Well, I don't know if you've looked into Tom DeLong, and that definitely brought some suspicion waves through the the community of podcasters for sure, you know, and I don't think a lot of people in the conspiracy realm really look at UFOs the same way since the government has come out and really just backed up this narrative with the Tic Tac video and the Navy reports. It doesn't surprise me one bit that this Williamson character was disinformation, obviously, like we said in the beginning, you can never be certain one way or another, especially given the nature of reality. You know, if you look around in the, and of course, when I started looking at Williamson, I started looking at other people he's connected with. And so you then tend to find the other figures in that are a guy named George Adamski that, you know, the, the first guy actually claimed to admit a Venusian in the Mojave Desert, as far as I know. A very unconvincing meeting to me at least, but nevertheless, there are people who believe that that's true. So there's George Adamski, uh, George Van Tassel, you know, who who had would, would host these, you know, that went on for uh, years and years. It would be an annual, it would be the biggest UFO gathering in the world. Thousands of people would, would come. In other words, anybody who had anything to say or information about flying saucers and things connected would all show up and give public presentations. So if you wanted to keep your finger on what was going on, if you wanted to know what there was that people might have discovered or what things they might have pieced together, all you had to do is show up there. George Hunt Williamson is there all the time, always talking. So there's, but the thing you find out about all these people Almost every one of them has some kind of connection either to the military or the aerospace industry, which is interesting. Right. Aerospace, military, black budget projects. Hmm. How much is all of this stuff simply to get people to think that they're looking at spacemen as opposed to secret projects that no one is supposed to know? Remember? keeping things secret, only those who are supposed to know. Now, I want to go on record here for the people who may be disappointed. I didn't say that there's no such thing as aliens. Size of the universe, there almost certainly is. Okay? I think I'll go along with that. They're out there somewhere. Are they here? <laughs> Have they ever been here? I don't know. Maybe. Could be. I mean, you know, for all of my interest in this type of thing the one thing that goes along with it is that i'm actually a pretty hard sell which means if you want me to believe in bigfoot show me a bigfoot all right don't tell me about what they eat or about the intricacies of their sex life of an animal you've never seen okay show me one and then i'll believe it otherwise it's an interesting story but that's about as far as we're going to go and it's pretty much the same with you know, alien visitation, you know, show me one. All right. I mean, there have been apparently so many flying saucers crashed everywhere that there should be some residue of some of them. And the inability to come up with any of it just doesn't enhance the credibility of the type of thing. So I don't know. So there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, as usual, there's, there's a huge amount of bullshit. 
I agree. There are, people, there are people who publish, and it becomes very difficult to separate those two things. So, my exploration, the idea, what I want to do is I want to take George Hunt Williamson, put him in his milieu, and my plan is either to come up with a book, or better yet, to come up with a short video series called Flying Saucers and Secret Agents, in which I will endeavor to look at the first decade or so of the UFO phenomenon and look at the connections between the people that involved and intelligence. I love it. And, you know, I have to ask, given that we started this conversation off talking about Crowley, I'm sure you know about his uh, lamb drawing that looks so coincidentally like the gray alien that everybody depicts. You know, I mean, and personally, I don't think it looks quite as much like a gray alien as other people. I mean, it's similar. Right. But... Part of it is that my whole illusion about it was was affected by the fact that an artist friend of mine said, "No, that's not a little guy with a big head. That's just a, that's just someone leaning forward. It's a matter of perspective." That Crowley was drawing the head leaning forward, and now when I look at that, that's what I tend to see. Hmm. Now, I you know it, it can be whatever you want to be in that case, <laughs> but it's a matter. Uh, you know. Um, it's intriguing. Okay. It's another, it's another piece of puzzling evidence, which is mostly what we have, but uh, it doesn't prove anything. Right. So, you know, and I, again, I, I want to see that. I want to see dead or alive. I want to see the Bigfoot. So there we go. Well, and I'll be convinced. Richard, you've taken us on a real, real whirlwind here. I, I'm eager to sign up for these courses. Wondrium, you said, are the great courses people can the great, find. It. Great courses is the easiest way to find it. Um, Wondrium is, is another name there. But yeah, uh, the Real History Secret Societies, Crimes of the Century, uh, and then maybe next year, Secrets of the Occult. Right. And you have many and, uh, books that people can purchase. A lot of the folks that listen to the show are readers themselves. Where can they find What's the best place to, to purchase your, your uh Amazon. Okay. Right. That's where you're going to go. You might find. So those are, um, I mean, the ones that are readily available. First book I ever did was a, a biography of an obscure Russian revolutionary figure called Boris Savinkov, who you would never be able to find. And I wish I had a bunch of copies of that because they now sell for hundreds of dollars, which I don't, I only have like two copies. Um, and then there is uh, main books you can find are, of course, Alistair Crowley, British Intelligence and the Occult, a Secret Agent 666, Alistair Crowley, British Agents and the Occult, and then Trust No One, The Secret World of Sidney Riley. My most recent book is Wall Street and the Russian Revolution. So if you want to get into political conspiracies, that is certainly, that, that actually of all of my books is the one that I'm really kind of proudest of in some way because I, I put together a lot of the, the research I'd done. But that is Wall Street and the Russian Revolution, 1905 uh, to ni 1925. So anything from occultism to political intrigue to espionage, you know, I'm your guy, I guess. Unhealthy interests that, uh, that can converge. That's one of the questions, you know, people will come up. How do you get interested in stuff like this? And, and here's the answer. Uh, you get interested in one thing by having been interested in something else. Mm. One thing leads you to another. You begin to see the connections between them, and that's how these things will go. Espionage leads you in a whole variety of unsavory directions. 
I would agree. I one of the first books I ever purchased from Barnes and Noble is a book called Spycraft, and it was like a manual. It showed you all these kind of techniques and and as things like jumping over a barbed wire fence, like things that a twelve year old never needed, you know. But either way, yeah, I I'm in concert with that. And and wow, I got to ask you, you know, given all of these interests, does your family think you're crazy, Doctor Spence? Well, they've never said so. Uh, from my, my wife is is occasionally dismayed by the various things that I goes into. Uh, she goes, "You really shouldn't talk about those things. People will think you're crazy." <laughs> but uh, um, you know, crazy is as 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 crazy does. But I don't know. I'd argue that my problem may be that I'm too sane. <laughs> Whatever that is, whatever that may be, I, I think that's that's all on a, on a on a spectrum. Uh, in, in some cases, yeah, I'd agree. And you know, it's been a pleasure getting into all this stuff with you. I definitely would like to talk to you again sometime, maybe about Mr. Sidney Riley, maybe about the Rosicrucians, another big interest of mine, the Russian Revolution, especially since it's one of your favorite. Uh, topics to get into. That's, I mean, my academically, the thing that I am really most centered on is modern Russian history. Okay. The history that that's, that's basically, so every, everything, all of my other interests in some way really come out of my interest in, in modern Russian political history, which is the Russian revolution, which is a conspiracy. There you go. Right. Well, I got to ask you, since you brought that up, one last thing, Anatoly Fomenko, are you familiar with him? Uh, is this the guy who has the altered timeline? He's been like huge in the podcast community lately. And given what you just said, I felt like uh, I had to ask you because, yeah, everybody cites his research and says, look, this is proof that we're living in an altered timeline. And, you know, given your uh, attitude about things, I figured you might have something to add there. Well, you know, that's one of the things that I would actually bring up in the conspiracies to secret societies class, not because I believe, but I wanted to expose people to this. And I go, look, there are people who argue that, you know, history. And the one thing I will tell you as a historian is that most stuff that passes for history is bunk. It's opinion. It's not fact. Facts in history are very few and far between. A fact is something that we can all absolutely agree happened. Right. So simple example, we can all agree that World War II happened. Okay. A lot of stuff got blown up. There was a war going on. But when you get into the questions of why it happened and how it started and how it went this course, and then, but then you just get opinion. Right. Then it's not entirely certain. You know, like, why did Hitler invade Russia? You know, what motivated him to do this? What was going on? Well, there is a matter of much less certainty. So when you realize that what passes for history is 10% fact at best and 90% opinion, this is where you can get this huge range. So then you've got Fomenko's opinion that, what is it, everything prior to the year 1000 is essentially just made up or recycled from something. It's this process which is continually recycled. Right. Um. It's an intriguing idea. Okay. Once again, I don't believe it and I don't argue that it just couldn't possibly be true. Well, I don't rate that possibility as very high, but there it is. He said it. I love it. Thank you, Dr. Spence. Have a wonderful evening. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure talking to you and to everybody, uh, all those other invisible people out there. There it is.
Thank you so much. Take it easy. Bye-bye. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, we are done with today's episode, but on to an extended outro, something new that I want to try. I feel like I've jammed a lot of stuff in the beginning of the episodes, and it might be better off in the back. You know, things like patron shout-outs, things like in-house you know promotions and all the little ins and outs of everything that includes promoting the guest and it feels like it's more appropriate to put it in the back and i think for listening as long as you have almost a two-hour interview now you get some rewards you get me uncut unfiltered that's right i'm not going to edit everything out like i usually do You know, I am the first one to tell you, you know, if a guest, you know, made me feel stupid or or proven me wrong or whatever it is. And today our guest didn't definitely didn't make me feel stupid. Not at all. He was a, a kind gentleman, but I definitely felt unprepared to be honest. And I want to do a better job in every interview I do to be as prepared as possible. Now, given, you know, I have Richard's book and I have read it through uh, a fair bit, you know, not chapter by chapter, but I've definitely read at least half. And like I said in the intro, it's a big part of the sort of thesis statement that I posed during my interview with Tinfoil Hat in Fitness episode 377. And yeah, there's some things that I might have embellished in the sense of like tinfoil hat is a sort of, uh, it's more of a intriguing look at these things rather than an academic look at these things. And I think it's important to have a balance of both, but you know, today there is a couple things that I brought up that were actually, you know, according to Richard, not true. Right. And like he said, one thing I will tell you as a historian is that most stuff that passes for history is opinion. It's not fact. Facts and history are very few and far between. The fact is something that we can absolutely all agree happened. Right. So simple example, we can all agree that World War Two happened. Uh, A lot of stuff got blown up. There was a war going on. But when you get into the question of quite how it happened and how it started and how it went this course, etc., etc. But I think that was a well-made point. Here we are in the outro. It's December, starting a new month. People have been reaching out lately and telling me that, you know, they're amazed at how many episodes there are. And thank you, I appreciate that. I've definitely been putting out a lot. I think it's it's like four a week, sometimes five, if I do the Elemental Philosophorum which is being recorded next this saturday so it'll actually be out probably when this is out since this is coming out on a wednesday and yeah a lot's going on i've been working on a lot and i'm trying to perfect the way i do this because i love this podcast i want to create the best product I can, the best art I can, really. That's more like how I see it. It's not really a product as much as it is an art form. And with art comes time, comes energy, 
effort, taking something, scrapping it, starting from scratch, building it back up again. And we've done that a couple times on the show. You know, we've had our ebbs and flows. We had Jay and the guys on the show back in the early days. We have Tara and I now on the show. Tara doesn't always join me, but I have a feeling she'll be joining us more and more as time goes on. And, you know, there's so many things that come along with putting a podcast together, editing the audio, editing the music in, which definitely isn't easy, (laughs) definitely not musically talented. So I just kind of go by what I think sounds cool. So, you know, you guys tell me what you think. I mean, really what the music, I'm perfectly happy just mixing it up every time. I think that's fun and adds to the artistry of it but at the same time if you guys would prefer to hear like something less all over the place let me know because i could find you know maybe a couple different songs that are limited to certain themes right so something like a deeper darker more intense theme song for an episode like today maybe an episode like the one we had with bob nickman something a little fun or positive an episode like the one we did with Peter kind of inspiring or or maybe like uh, adventurous sounding I don't know see like look at the words I'm using I'm definitely not a musician but you know a lot's been going on in my life and one of the things that I really take solace and enjoy doing is this podcast it's a it's not an escape but it's definitely uh, a road to a different life and I couldn't do it without you folks the lovely listeners of this show so join in the community i definitely can't do it alone there's already a bunch of people who are chatting away in the telegram and i'm happy to see all 100 and something of you there please folks join in the telegram join the community i have been going live and i will say i have to apologize to the couple people who were in today and yesterday's telegram live streams because you know i'm doing all this stuff on my own if i'm interviewing somebody and then i have to get distracted with the live stream tech stuff you know like i'm gonna weigh those options in the moment i'm gonna say well the interview is more important let me focus on the interview so when i had a little bit of tech difficulties and the telegram live stream wasn't working right away i had to drop it and it was unfortunate because it wasn't even telegram's fault It was my computer's fault. I lost internet. I had to switch to the, basically switch from my computer Zoom meeting to my phone, both of which are connected to the mixer that records the show. And I was able to reroute it to my phone and keep the conversation going. And then once I had internet connection, I rerouted it back to my computer. So everything was fine. You may have noticed a little audio discrepancy around 30 minutes in. That's what that was. But all that being said, I, I I knew there was a handful of people in the Telegram listening live. And unfortunately, you guys weren't able to make it with me towards the latter half of the conversation. But that's okay. Obviously, you guys heard it here today and now. But shout out to everybody that was listening in the Telegram live stream. I'm going to do my best to figure out all of the things that can possibly go wrong. Troubleshoot and, you know... We've been streaming live to Rockfin as well. I actually streamed your handbook for the apocalypse to Rockfin yesterday. 
had a pretty epic failure though again uh, new to all this stuff so there's going to be problems uh, that I run into but that's what troubleshooting is you know you run into trouble you shoot it and then you fix it right so we fixed it I think and I should be able to rockfin live stream again with much much better sound quality than we previously had so stick around on rockfin because we are going to be posting your handbook for the apocalypse there live every week you can also listen to your handbook for the apocalypse on michael wan's susquehanna alchemy rss feed that's s u s q u e h a n n a alchemy a l c h e m y susquehanna alchemy search that in the podcast players maybe the podcast player that you're listening to this right now on hmm maybe go into the episode catalog and and find your handbook for the apocalypse and click the link subscribe we definitely want you guys listening over there we put the first 12 episodes of your handbook for the apocalypse here on the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast rss feed they're definitely going to stay there I just want to grow Mike's own RSS feed because it is, you know, conceivably his. I host it, but the the thought was to create one for him, and I want him to feel free to put whatever he wants on it. You know what I mean? But we need you guys there listening. It's a great show. I know a lot of you found me through conversations like the one I had with Mike and, and Chance Garten. Chance has had Mike on his show many times. I really appreciate all you Interverse listeners joining us here and the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy crew. If you join us on Patreon like Chance did, you get a spirit animal name. Shout out to our latest spirit animal divided being. What's up, yo? He is the Thunder Being. They are the Thunder Being. Very anonymous patron account. You don't have to give me your name, your address, whatever it is. If you join the book club the best friend book club make sure you send me your address so i can send you a book from my collection speaking of books i have today's guest richard spence's book right next to me and recently i ordered two books from walter bosley i got the 33rd parallel book all about disney and the 33rd parallel and then i got his first edition of the empire of the wheel the first volume in that series I'm looking forward to getting into more of Walter Bosley's stuff. I've heard him before briefly on past interviews, and I reached out to him, and we'll see what happens. But Walter's work came through the Asynchro docket this week, and yeah, I was really taken back. The other person that came through the Synchro docket was Isaac Weishaupt. It's funny, I just listened to the Higher Side Chat's new episode with Isaac, And as I, like a minute into hitting play, my buddy Joe from the Legit Bat Podcast hits me up and he's like, hey, do you have Isaac Weissop's email by any chance? (laughs) Which I was like, dude, are you psychic? How'd you know I just turned Isaac Weissop's episode on? You know, that's crazy. So it was funny. And then I went on Isaac's website and I ordered a book from Isaac Weissop's website so stay tuned we might be having isaac back on the show in the future to get into that we'll see knock on wood but either way folks 
This has been an extended intro here, or outro, sorry. An extended outro, unedited, uncut. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. We got a lot of cool stuff on the Patreon. If you didn't know, we release every episode early on the Patreon, at least a week early, as soon as I can. doesn't always work out that way, but it's always at least three days, three to five days sooner than it comes out on the free feed. I also put bonus content there, bonus episodes that you won't find anywhere else, such as the Library of the Mystagogue. We also have the full scene synchro mystic exploration of the ever-expanding now. If you've heard that show before in this RSS feed, you might have only heard half of it. You got to sign up to the Patreon to hear the full interview. And there's a lot that we left out trying to encourage a value for value model here. But it looks like we got some sponsors, folks. That's right. And I will be reading those sponsors in the outros. I think that's the best move. I think the people who listen to the show, who care about the show, are going to stick around for the whole outro. And I think if you guys, you know, understood where I'm at in life and why I need the money (laughs) to keep this thing going, then you would sign up on the Patreon because the more patron subscribers we get, the more I'm able to do this show without relying on something like a sponsor. If Patreon's not your thing, we have Ko-fi, Ko-fi.com. I just set up a Ko-fi. And what's cool about that is we'll be able to sell a lot of art. And I think I'll even start selling some of my jewelry there. So check out Mystic Mark's jewelry. That's right. I spent many years of my life making crystal artwork. And I still have a fair amount of wraps that just kind of collect dust. So I'm going to polish them all off, take nice shiny pictures of them and post them on our new website. We also have a gum road. If you're a podcaster, you want to start a podcast, maybe you're a new podcaster, you want to polish up your skills, you want to increase your downloads, you want to get out there, you want to get more traction, go over to altmediaunited.com. If you're not already a part of it, hit me up. You're more than welcome to join our cooperative. If you don't have a podcast yet, still hit me up. I just started a new podcast company we'll call it alt media united Productions, separate from the alt media united cooperative where for a monthly fee you can take a series of courses which entails you know me basically helping you get all the tools and skills you need to do exactly what i've done and we've almost hit almost 200,000 downloads in less than a year so i mean I'm not saying I'm a pro by any means, but I definitely think I have a good head for what's going on and what people should or shouldn't do, how to do it. And there's a lot of benefits from working with us. So if that sounds of interest, go over to altmediaunited.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page, and you can see either the Gumroad or the Patreon accounts there. And that's a great way to get in touch with me in a professional way and learn how to do something like podcasting or even just content creating it doesn't just have to be a conspiracy podcast maybe you want to do a travel podcast a cooking podcast it definitely applies to all sorts of different genres categories and pursuits that being said folks this has been an extended outro for the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast 
episode 112 with Richard Spence, author of Secret Agent 666, many, many other books. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for showing us some love on Patreon. Shout out to all our patrons. Shout out to the Telegram community, the Instagram community, all of the folks, the fine, fine folks who hit me up on Instagram. Shout out to you. And with that, folks, have a great moment wherever you are in the now.